0: LegalizeFreedom.com
1: Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is outspoken teacher and commentator Christian Morris, who joins us to discuss corruption and collusion in the political establishment and mainstream media during the coronavirus crisis. Hello and welcome, Christian. Thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. Now, Christian, today we're just going to be having a bit of a free-flowing chat, but before we get started, for people who don't know, just tell listeners a little bit about yourself, and perhaps a good way to get into this would be to... Something I picked up on one of your recent YouTube videos, where you said that you had your own red pill moment in 2012 and I just wondered what that was so just um,
0: I think I will sk- skite over that simply because at the moment it's subject to high court litigation and the people who normally now I would be quite happy to discuss high court litigation till the cows come home but there is the possibility that one or two of the other parties in that case may want confidentiality at some time in the future so I won't discuss that particular what gave me the red pill in 2012? Um, if you don't mind, no. no, no. Uh, what gave me the red pill in 2019? I can discuss till the cows come home. Uh, well, let's do that then. And please feel free to leave in anything I've just said there. I mean, the fact everybody, you know, there's about 30 different High Court cases that I've brought. I brought three this year alone. You know, in, in this is in Dublin, in the High Court in Dublin, and you know, uh, I, I I don't mind anything that I've said since the start of the interview being left in, but. I'm not going to discuss what happened in 2012 at this early stage, at this relatively early stage. My 2019 red pill was with Leo Varadkar, who was our Taoiseach for British viewers, or British listeners, that means Prime Minister. He was our Taoiseach from 2017 until June of this year. And, you know, I could spend another three hours telling you why that individual is unfit for office, he's unfit to clean toilets. Literally, I mean all of us over here, so many of us on the alt scene here were saying, Could they have chosen anybody worse? Could they have possibly chosen anybody worse to be Theicia than Leo Varadkar? um possibly Stephen Donnelly, but anyway, um Leo Varadkar in twenty nineteen responded to a news article about four doctors four specialists four morticians in waterford university hospital now the morticians had written to their senior management about malpractice in the mortuary of waterford hospital this included the fact that when somebody died they weren't transitioned over to be embalmed or frozen immediately now i'm not entirely sure what the medical procedure when somebody dies is but when somebody dies they begin to decompose very quickly indeed and they need to be, you know, the body needs to be dealt with. And it wasn't happening. And there were credible reports which were corroborated by these four morticians of people decomposing in front of their loved ones. And Farad response to this was, well, there's nothing to prove that it's true. So, in other words, when these four morticians blew their story to the media because their senior management had completely ignored them for over over half a year. Veradkar's instinctive response was to accuse him of lying. And that's how psychopaths work. I wouldn't expect anything better from a creature like Veradkar. But then there was a lot of media hoo-ha about it. The four morticians spoke out against it. Other doctors and other whistleblowers said this is a disgraceful and deplorable way to treat a whistleblower. Um, I then saw at the end of the week on the 6-1 news on RTE 1. And the Saturday 6-1 news is the one that will be watched by more people than the weekday ones. The newsreader Eileen Don said, The Taoiseach Leo Voradker has issued an unconditional apology for his remarks about the four whistleblowing doctors in Waterford. Eileen Dunn does news for the day for a reason. You know, because, you know, she should be doing radio for the deaf as well. But he, I then heard what Varadkar said in the Doyle, either that day or, yeah, it had been that, uh, that day. And he said, I apologize if it seems that I said X, Y, Z. Now, what a good journalist and what a good newsroom and RTE would have been doing, would have been saying the Taoiseach is continuing to lie. Where what RTE said was that he'd apologized or, in fact, by saying it seems that you uh, that I that I said this, he's actually gaslighting everybody else. Because if you're saying, I apologize if it seems that I said something. What is being implied is that the people who listened to what he said got it wrong. No, sorry, we didn't get it wrong. Veradkar's initial response and his instinctive response and the real Veradkar was to accuse those four whistleblowing doctors of lying. And a good journalist and good newspaper journalists and good TV journalists would have gone after him particularly worse so, more diligently, after he said, I apologise if it seems. So I said to myself, that was the first time in my life, I said, RTG is telling lies to protect the establishment. Because I'm not a tinfoil hatter particularly, I I would try to keep things as moderate and as balanced as possible. And you must understand that newsrooms and newspapers and television stations, more now than ever, are under more pressure than ever. They don't have the money anymore, they don't have the time anymore, and mistakes happen. But for RTE to say that Taoiseach could apologise, for, in fact, he'd done nothing of the sort, that's not a mistake, that's a lie.
1: Well, I think some of the worst examples I can think of that would be comparable, but even on a, a bigger scale, or stories of more importance affecting more people, were uh, the behaviour of the BBC around the Scottish independence vote, you tell and, me
0: about that. Uh, tell me more.
1: Well, I, it's a while ago now and I don't have a lot to say in detail really, but it was, and they, they behaved in the same way around the Brexit vote. Now, it does not matter, uh, in my opinion, what your feelings are about Scottish independence or about Brexit, but it was the way that much of the mainstream media, particularly the BBC, just to make an analogy here with, you know, with RTE, that uh, for listeners who don't know, RTE is basically the Irish national
0: broadcaster as the BBC is. It is our, to explain slightly in further detail to the British or UK listeners, RTE is our direct equivalent of the BBC. It is our state broadcaster. It's our public service broadcaster. And like the BBC, it's a a colleague member of the European Broadcasting Union.
1: So, yeah, so just what you were mentioning there just reminded me of my reaction to... Uh, listening to, to coverage, I say, first of the Scottish referendum, then of Brexit. And by the way, I subsequently have ceased completely uh listening to any mainstream news content whatsoever. And the last I remembered, clearly, it was the morning of March 17th this year, St. Patrick's Day, as it happens, when I listened to my last BBC broadcast. I'm nothing since then, and I think I'm probably a lot better off for it. I was never a wholesale swallower of all the mainstream news perspectives, contents. I mean, I've been skeptical about it since I studied politics um, Mm -hmm. in the early 90s. Um, Mm -hmm. However, I would monitor what they were doing. You know, you just like to know what the other people that you come into contact with in everyday life, you know, where are they getting their information from? So if you pay attention to the BBC or RTE, somewhat, then when they come out with something, oh, well, this is the case, and I believe this, and I believe that, and so-and-so says that. At least you know where it's coming from, mm-hmm. and it leaves you somewhat uh, informed to engage in debate. But the the jaw-dropping bias mm-hmm. and distortions that I uh, sat through, uh, mm-hmm. both with the Scottish referendum, independence referendum, and Brexit from the BBC, let's just stick with that, it, it was incredible. I was like, I can't believe I'm hearing this. And I know there's media bias. I know that uh, commercial media, you know, the for-profit media, dependent on advertising, have their own all their own issues as well. But I said, from the BBC that I was from, when I was a child was taught was you know the paragon of truth, and it was it was truly independent because it wasn't dependent on advertising and yada yada yada. The voice of the nation, the the, the one that that we turn to in times of crisis for uh, what the the real story is. I said, I can't believe I'm hearing this. I said, just literally, you, don't, you know, anybody with two brain cells to rub together should be able to listen to this. And go, hang on a minute. That's not true. And yet mm. in all, there it was bold as brass on BBC headlines. Yeah. So what mm. you're saying, it doesn't come as a surprise at all. And I think there's a, there's mm. a parallel here between the degeneration as we would see it of. The media and the, the brazenness of the bias and also the, the corruption of, uh, the political class, that class. And I don't mean that old fashioned corruption, you know, uh, money in brown envelopes, you know, and, and et cetera, et cetera, and jobs for the boys and funny handshakes and all that. I'm talking about a certain change happening in the political class that appears to be in lockstep. You know, you're getting similar types of leaders. I mean, back in the days when, when I still lived in Ireland, uh, and who would
0: imagine you'd have someone like Varadkar so, quote unquote leading Ireland now when you have That's had... right, yeah. The distinction I would draw with Faradkar is that he is not an adult. That's not a functioning adult there. This is not said facetiously and I'm not exaggerating. So for example politics is dirty and it always has been dirty and it attracts a dirty type of person. I'm thinking for example of Charles Hahe, our former Taoiseach in the nineteen eighties up to nineteen ninety two. But Hahey was an adult and he was a hard man and I remember talking to a civil servant, because everybody in Dublin knows everybody, Every, you know, I remember talking to a civil servant who said when he would go into Hahi's office, he was the only Taoiseach who never cleared his desk away or hid stuff. Mm. And he said "Hahi remembered everything the first time and Hahi had an incredible attention to detail. But moreover, at a broader level now, and at a personal level, people took Hahi seriously. Uh, his counterpart in the 1980s was Dr. Garrett Fitzgerald, who led Finnegale. And the more I look at Fitzgerald, the less savoury I find him. But Fitzgerald had a PhD and Fitzgerald was, you know, at the same time you were dealing with an adult. Gareth Fitzgerald hated Margaret Thatcher. She treated him like shite, Margaret Thatcher did. And um, on one occasion, uh, it was the no, 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 no. It was out, out, out at uh, I think it was at Sunningdale or Stormont there had been a diplomatic agreement done between the UK delegation and the Irish delegation. And Margaret Thatcher then went out and gave a press conference in which she completely undermined everything. And Gary Fitzgerald, it's interesting to watch that particular press conference. Fitzgerald is sitting there with the face turning green on him. And he, in his own memoirs afterwards, said, Douglas Hurd came to him afterwards and said, now, he said, you've seen what we have to put up with. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the distinction that I draw is that, even other Taoiseach like, say, Bertie Ahern, John Bruton, who I didn't like at all, um, his predecessor, Albert Reynolds, who was a far better Taoiseach than he ever got credit for. They were grown-ups. Where all Varadkar seems to want to do is to write letters to Kylie Minogue, show off his socks, do these stupid, goofy, puerile things, and then whenever he does it, The mainstream media, particularly RTG, they either ignore it or they make a laugh of it. Well, sorry, I want somebody with gravitas and dignity who represents my country properly abroad. So when Varadkar became Taoiseach without a general election in 2017, one of the first things he did was he went to Downing Street and said that he felt like Hugh Grant dancing up the corridors in love, actually. And I wasn't amused by that because it lacks gravitas. And what it says is that the senior most politician in our doyle is somebody who the British delegation and the US delegation do not need to take seriously. I can be very flippant myself. I can be very, I can use very bad language myself. Uh, but at the same time, if I was ever in court and you read transcripts of me from court, it's a different person because that's for the grown-ups, particularly the high court and beyond. But you always get the feeling that Faradkar just wants, well, he's a narcissist and he's a low IQ sociopath. I also think uh, there is evidence of some autism there, that he's somewhere on the autistic scale because he just does not have any ability to read what would be appropriate conduct in any given public situation. How we behave in private, how I'm behaving now, I'm just a guy on the dole, you know, giving an interview to you on Skype. I'm not the teacher. But you can be bloody sure that if I was in a similar position, I wouldn't behave the way verratker does. Well, a couple of the comments you
1: made there cut to a whole issue that I hinted at as well, which is the, the, this, the emergence of a sort of a political class of uh, narcissists and sociopaths. Mm. And, of course, people have said for a long time that, you know, the sort of powerful positions and political office attracts People who basically want control over other people, and therefore people should never be allowed to have power. There's a series of interviews I did with um, a guy called Nick Duffel, who's um, written a lot about <laughs> psychopathy and and leadership, and how the formative years of people who come into positions of power have enormous effects on their their conduct in political and public life. And what you said about Varadkar being a child really reminded me of that, because I've done quite a bit of work in this area about how these are, and I'm not making any excuses for people like this, but how these are basically, as you say, they're not adults, there's more and more people in positions of power behaving like this, and we can look back at the the leaders in the past that you spoke about. You re- read off some of the Irish politicians, but they almost ap- they appear in such a different light compared to where we are now. Where we are now, and I'm still, Absolutely. I'm still trying to work out what's actually happening here. I don't know if you feel you've got any insight in that. You know, there's because there's definitely a pattern. I do.
0: Um, first of all, I would say that. It is too convenient and lazy to compare people like, on the one hand, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, and on the other hand, Varadkar, to one another. Because Boris Johnson is an adult, and Donald Trump is an adult. I'm a supporter of Trump. You may have seen that from my social media. Uh, I'm much more reserved in my position about Boris Johnson. But what I've always been struck by with Trump is, first of all, how cogent he is when he's interviewed extempore. Secondly, how Trump actually has a very strong finger on the pulse of the mood. So when Trump meets people who've been injured or people or you know, veteran soldiers, people come away from meeting Trump talking about his positive charisma and how much they enjoyed meeting him. Nobody I've ever come across said they enjoyed at a person level encountering Leo Varadkar. Um, This is where we return to the issue of what I raised with, what what I started with, the issue of a rigorous and uh, scrupulous mainstream media who are willing to question the behaviour of this person. So, for example, if you look at Donald Trump, all he gets is abuse in the mainstream media, yet he's still here. And I see no reason to believe that he won't win again in November coming, and that he'll probably win the popular vote in comparison to last time, when Clinton won the popular vote, but Trump won the college. Um I think Trump will win both the college and the popular vote this time. He is up against a diabolical candidate. Middle America are not stupid people. Middle America, I've met middle American people from the southern states, from the inland states. They're polite, moderate, decent folk, the Americans that I've met. I know Americans in places like Arkansas. They're clever people. They get a bad press. They get portrayed as being backwoods men and this kind of thing we have them in every country you have them in the uk we have them in ireland they have them in america but there is this very very big silent majority in the u.s who are well-educated decent kind civilized liberal and tolerant people and they don't like the likes of hillary clinton calling them the deplorables as she did in 2016 and i remember at the time in 2016 saying, you know, Clinton's going to lose. Once you use the term the deplorables to describe an entire constituency of people across the United States, I said, that's okay. I said, I really think Trump's going to pull this off. And he did. And Trump relates to people. Clinton never did. And Joe Biden is a sexual pervert with dementia. So, you know, and people see this. Biden cannot string a sentence together. I'll I'll digress with an anecdote. There's a video online of Biden calling himself his wife's wife. And that video was edited by RTE to cut out all of his demented moments. And again, there you have it. RTE is promoting Biden by not putting in the fact that this video contained very clear and consistent evidence of Biden's progressive and incipient dementia. There we have it again. There's another example of RTE plugging politicians who they've chosen to plug. You know, Uh, what was your question? We've digressed a bit.
1: No, it's okay. In fact, you've led us on to interesting territory, uh, but but just to backtrack very slightly, when I was talking about perceiving a, a trend, a rise, spread of infantile, sort of insubstantial narcissistic leaders, not just at national level, but just across politics in general, I didn't actually mention Trump, but you're absolutely right to point out that it is lazy and too convenient to make comparisons between, for example, Boris Johnson and Trump. But what you then went on to say about Trump and his election victory reminded me again brings us back to the Brexit thing is that there were a load of the 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 people who had grievances and that they were not a homogenous group of people you know a a great you know oppressed mass they were very different types uh, from across the socio socio political spectrum even if there there were certain commonalities among some of them and they had issues uh, that they were concerned about. And they were ignored year in, year out by politicians and by the media who talked down to them and Mm -hmm. just bulldozed over them. And when it came along to Brexit, I remember I sat up the night of the Brexit vote, you know, that decisive night. And most most people who are observing it expected it to be no to Brexit. That is to say that uh, the UK would remain within the European Union. Uh, we thought it would be close. The polls were telling us that, even though the BBC and others were, were shouting, oh, yeah, of course, it'll, it'll be an easy win, uh, for Remain. And, but as the night went on, and I remember I got to about three o'clock in the morning and I couldn't stay awake anymore. And just at that point, the tide was starting to turn. I thought, good lord, you know what? This could actually go through. And as soon as I woke up in the morning, I put on the TV and it had. And that was an important sea change moment when, you know, the people who were The small, you know, people in ivory towers who were who were berating a certain class of people from the media and politics berating certain class of uh, people were confounded, and they didn't know what to do with it. And the same thing happened again with the election of Donald Trump. It was expected to be close, but ultimately, you know, the the heir apparent was going to have it, and Trump would just be a bit of a wake up call, perhaps, for the Democrats. And I watched the coverage that night as well, and the same thing happened i went Mm. to bed thinking oh good lord this could go this could actually happen you know and then Mm -hmm. it and it did Mm -hmm. so these are very important moments i think that's a reason why in the aftermath of the leave vote in the uk and in the aftermath of donald trump's election of course now it's been so long ago that we're back up to a new election cycle now but that's why so many things have unfolded the way they have
0: i can give you a third one it happened in ireland this year because. For the first time in Ireland, really since the, since independence from the UK, we now have three parties in the Doyle that are of essentially equal pegging. The first one is Fianna Foyle, they have 37 seats. The third is, the second is Sinn Fein, they have 36 seats. And the third is Fine Gael, who have 35 seats. I did not predict that that election would go that way. I didn't think Sinn Féin would get so many seats, and I didn't think Fianna would get so many seats. I thought Fianna Fáil would get the... Well, they did get the plurality, but they got it by one or two seats, or I thought that they would get maybe 50 seats, whereas what happened in the Republic of Ireland was that Sinn Féin went from 20 seats to 35, and... That was very similar. It was identical in its motive to to Trump and to Brexit, and so far it was a protest vote. What happened then was, um, you know, all the pearl clutchers in RTE and in the Irish Times and in middle class Ireland all had a shit fit over it. And uh, I said to them when I'd be talking to them people at the coffee shop or in the supermarket or that. Oh, isn't it terrible? They'd be saying. Yes, I said it's terrible. Fine Gael got 35 seats. I wanted them to get five. Oh, no, but you know what I mean. Oh, I I said, you tell me what you mean. I don't know what you mean. You tell me what you mean. Um, that Sinn Féin got 35 seats. Well, I said, has it occurred to you to examine the motives? And it's the same with Brexit. It's the same with... You know, with Trump. Although I actually think that the Trump vote was coming from an awful lot of people who wanted to see Trump get elected. Whereas the Brexit vote was coming from that was a big protest vote really. Yes, the Brexit vote.
1: Yeah, they knew what they I were think
0: they, they knew what they were voting against, but not
1: necessarily what they were voting for. They still don't know what they were voting for. And by the way, I'm very pro European Union. Yeah, and again that's fine. And that that in fact uh, brings us to another Point, doesn't it? Uh, Which we both touched upon obliquely, which is how people feel that they can't understand how people can hold uh, what appear to be contradictory positions, but they're not. For example, you say that you're pro EU, that's fine, but if someone heard you say that you were a supporter of Trump on some level, they'd say, well, you can't possibly be pro EU. So it's a lack of nuanced. Understanding of what of that's the right. what's going on here. It's this simplistic black and white, which in, in especially this year with everything that's happened with the pandemic, the media and politicians have gone into overdrive with um, their simplicity. It reminds me of all the wars that we've lived through, mm. you know, our generation and how and the nine eleven and all the rest of it. And in, in the wake of that, when Bush, the poor idiot boy junior, said, "You're either with us or whether you're the ter- you're with the terrorists," you can't possibly hold nuanced views, and you can't possibly hold one view on one subject and another on another. It's just, I mean, that's one of the problems with politics in general. It's why I've never voted, and it's why I could never join a political party, because it's like if you buy one
0: thing off the the political shelf, you have to have every item on the shelf. Well, I don't agree, because I always vote. I'm very fussy about using my vote. I have three votes. I have one vote in the Doyle and two in the Shannon. And uh, there's now going to possibly be another high court litigation from me because through an error in one electoral office, I was deprived of my second Shannon vote. The Shannon is our Senate. We have two houses in Ireland. The Oireachtas comprises the Doyle, which is the equivalent of the House of Commons. And we have a 60 seat Senate and members of the public can vote for the Senate if they are graduates of two specific universities. And I am. And the second university fucked up my Entry to the electoral register and i'm going to there's going to be questions to be answered there and I use my vote assiduously all the time i'm very fussy about using my vote all the time, but I did decide, for example, after this year's general election in Ireland that I wouldn't ever run for office because I said to you know I said you let fucking Finnegale back in you let i mean we could spend another three hours talking specifically about what's wrong with Fine Gael, but I said if the Irish people let Finnegale back in again and they have, they deserve anything they get. And furthermore, somebody as fucking candid as me is never, ever, ever going to win over that constituency. Not in a bloody fit would I ever be elected by the kind of people who would let Finnegale back in after the disastrous electoral performance and the disastrous political performance that they put in since twenty eleven, but particularly since Faradkar took over. So you know, I, my support of the European Union comes from looking closer at the actual structure of the European Union and how it works, particularly in a country like mine, but also in a country like yours. Now, it is a lie to suggest that membership of the European Union confers upon us a duty to have open borders. Immigration policy in the United Kingdom is decided in London, and immigration policy in the Republic of Ireland is decided in Dublin. So to be saying that being in the European Union means that we have to have open borders and unvetted mass immigration is a lie. That's a lie that's being perpetuated, and that needs to be called out. So an awful lot of the people, I think, who voted for Brexit, and don't forget that Northern Ireland and Scotland voted to stay in the European Union, but the people in England and Wales who took it over a quorum across the four corners of the United Kingdom, I spoke to a few of them and they said, well, we didn't want, you know, mass immigration. Well, I said, how has that turned out for you? Hmm. Because you still have it. You still have it because then nobody told you that immigration policy is decided exclusively in London. It's not decided in Brussels. And it's the same at Dublin. Um, So... I view the European Union, and I still am very clear about the fact that I view it positively. It's been of huge benefit to my country. It's been of enormous benefit to my country. It has taken us out of being under the shadow of Britain, which we were under. You know, okay, we became independent in 1922. The Republic of Ireland was declared in 1949. But effectively, we were a client state of, of the UK. And our integration into the European Union, our taking on of the Euro, our taking on of so many other things as the European Union, has objectively been of huge benefit to us. We do not have to have open borders. Look at Poland and Hungary. They're not going to leave the European Union, but they're setting their own agenda. And the reason why is because of what Thomas Sheridan says, cowardice and mediocrity. We elect mediocre politicians who are too bloody cowardly to turn around to Brussels and say, hang on, we're going to do the Polish-Hungary thing and we're closing our borders and we're letting in who we decide.
1: Well, there was, it is accepted, a huge failure on the part of the Remain campaign in the UK to really proactively communicate their case. I think they took their own uh, victory, or at least, you know, nudging over the line for granted,
0: yeah, they were complacent. They were very complacent. I agree with you totally.
1: So if they'd spoken about it, like with, with, you know, an, an ounce of the sort of, uh, clarity and passion that you just have, for example, then maybe more people would have thought about it. Because one thing we know, uh, from watching day-to-day political life is that most people in the street don't really engage deeply with details of, of policy and how it affects them. They're, they're mainly, and some might, people might say rightly concerned with, you know, Money in the bank account, food on the table, job to go to, and anything to do with uh, immigration policy, whatever. They, do they know where it's being made? Or they just, all they know is, you know, do they feel there's too many foreign workers in their town taking their jobs or whatever it happens to be? But I think you could say the exact same thing happened in the US. You know, with the, the Democrats, you know. I mean Clinton, as I mentioned, heir apparent, heiress apparent. It was it was hers to lose really
0: and um so and she lost it. Yeah. She did. She went for it. And then after she lost, you know, she came on to to RTE on the Dogshite shite late late show with Ryan Tubrady, who I mean, you know, just look at Ryan Tubberdy's he's bloody awfully he it's and she had her book and her book was called What Happened and I tweeted, You lost <laughs> Yeah. What happened? What the fuck do you think happened, Hillary? You lost. You know, it seems fairly clear to me. You lost. And again, that's that RTE thing. They're not interviewing Trump. Oh, no, no, no. They're going to interview the loser. Of course, they are. Because, hey, she's a Democrat and she's a woman and she's Bill's wife. And look what the Clinton Foundation did for Ireland. So, you know, she again, it's this bullshit where she gets a free pass by this woke, cowardly, mediocre mainstream media. And I would draw a cardinal distinction between RTE and BBC insofar as RTE is a family affair. You do not get a job on RTE these days uh, unless you're related to some other non-entity in RTE these days, where up to the start of the 1980s, RTE was known both for its pluralism, to a certain extent, and for its courage. In other words, the politicians hated RTE because RTE never hesitated to hold their feet to the fire. That has... <clears throat> now RTE has become synonymous with basically with establishment propaganda, which it is. But that didn't happen overnight. We began to see it manifest itself more crassly when Varadkar became Taoiseach because, hey, Varadkar was openly gay and Varadkar was half Indian and he was apparently well-educated because... The Irish middle class think qualifying as a doctor makes you well educated and clever. So he ticked all of these woke boxes with RTE, which made them all just faint in front of him. And that's still the case. Um, but actually that mediocrity and cowardice and weakness, that dry rot that was in RTE had been in, you know, had been growing in there for a long, long, long time in another world, in another lifetime. I would be a journalist in RTE. I would be a journalist in the Irish Times. You know, And without tooting my own horn, I'm well-educated. I have three university degrees. I was a secondary school teacher of English to the equivalent of A level. Of course, I and I speak well, and my presentation is reasonably good. I would be a prime candidate for a television station like RTE, and there is a reason why I'm not.
1: Yeah, there was something in that really that I mean, I probably put myself on the same boat. To be honest with you, I worked in um, the media for well since nineteen ninety, but it was uh, music industry, so it was very specific and it's got its own problems and travails. But it's a, a little, little niche. But I often thought, you know, that that's something I could have pursued. I tell you why I didn't uh, ultimately is because I almost did a journalism degree when I naively thought that if I did that, I would be able to become a journalist rather than just, if you want to do journalism, just do it. It's That's like, right. You know, it's like I've written for a long time, again, since the late eighties. And people would sometimes say to me, younger people say, Oh, you know, you've been writing so many articles and you've done this and you've done that. How do you become a writer? And I just said, You write that's right you know um but i i went to i was shortlisted i applied for this journalism course and uh, i was shortlisted and and there was only there were not very many places on the course like less than 10 and i think 13 of us were shortlisted to go along to a day uh, sort of to you know final test just to you know sort out who was going to make the cut and who wouldn't And we did lots of exercises and and individual exercises and team working and, you know, a day in a news office and and all the rest of it. Um, And that's where I'd start. That was a long time ago. So maybe I'd have got somewhere out of all of that. I don't know. But I didn't want to start there because I'd already had published articles and contributed to encyclopedias and things. So I I didn't want to do that. And that model's gone away, Mm. you know, uh, with the, the rise of the Internet and increasingly sophisticated alternative media, the model has gone away of like, you know, somebody starting on a local newspaper and working their way up. That just does not exist anymore. And watching the unravelling of the the mainstream media behemoths, be they state-funded or otherwise, is, is something to behold because it seems to be intimately connected with their their handling of the the big stories of the day and you know, where we are now in 2020 of the the coronavirus crisis, how they're dealing with all this, yeah. um, how they how they've dealt with Brexit, how they dealt with Trump, how they dealt with 9-11. It all seems to be like on a, a progressive timeline of disintegration, really, mm. you know, and failure to adapt to a
0: changing technological landscape. Well, I would go further than that, and I would say the distinction between B- the BBC and RTE is that if you want to work in the BBC, you have to be woke. If you want to work in RTE, you have to be woke and related. So the BBC would still be more inclined to take people who have got talent, but who are willing to fit the agenda. Whereas RTE don't give a shite about talent. It's just about knowing the right person and being right, related to the right people. And therefore, when RTE is now insolvent, RTE is bossed financially. But there's nobody in there who's willing to turn around or able to turn around and say, look, here's how we deal with this, because they're all clinging to the same lifeboat, in a sense, and they're all codependent on one another. I think there is much less of that culture in the BBC and also the UK has a much longer established tradition of competitive media. So you have Channel 4, you have Channel 5, you have, to a certain extent, ITV. We don't have that degree of competition or nature of competition here. The only independent broadcaster we have on television is Virgin Media, and I'm afraid they're not really up to very much either. So you have, you know, basically a duopoly between Virgin Media and RTE, where in Britain you don't. You have, it, it is much more fragmented in Britain. Let's talk about something else, because this is a more relevant thing than something that's eating a lot of people, and that's the issue of masks.
1: Yes. Okay. Now, if people are suddenly jolted up from their Ovaltine by what you just said, there is a connection here because what I was ultimately going to do was, basically, you know, having uh, enjoyed some of your recent YouTube content, was going to be seeking from this political class that we're talking about the sort of manifestation of that their behaviour, through to one particularly. Um, entertaining stroke uh, depressing episode, this golf dinner that took place uh, in Ireland that involved a lot of politicians. I don't know if it's exclusively politicians. You can tell us about that. No, it wasn't.
0: I'll tell you about it.
1: And give us the background
0: as well, because, of course, it's all the background is the coronavirus crisis. Mainstream media has done what the mainstream media do and they have minimised and attempted to move on from what actually really, really happened at that golfing dinner in the Station House Hotel in Clifton in Connemara. What happened was a group of 80 or so politicians and at least one judge of the Supreme Court were at a dinner in which they openly flouted all of the laws in relation to and all of the guidelines in relation to uh COVID-19. Another question that nobody has asked is what was a Supreme Court judge doing at a parliamentary function? Because we are supposed to have a separation of powers and the notion that a judge who is in the Supreme Court and in many instances may be conducting constitutional review of statute is sitting with the people who are making the statute, to my mind, is immediately questionable. So let's leave aside now the whole COVID-19 scam. I will come back to that very quickly. Why is a Supreme Court judge going to an Oroctus dinner? He's not a member of the Oroctus, He's a member of the judiciary. The judiciary, as far as I know, I I might not be, I might be wrong. The judiciary, in my opinion, have their own golfing society. In fact, I can bet your bloody life they do. So why is he not going to their dinner? Why is he hobnobbing? on what seems to be very close and familiar terms with a crowd of politicians. And by the way, he only became a Supreme Court judge very recently. He had been the Attorney General. So in other words, he had been the legal advisor to the Fine Gael government. This is all too incestuous. This is all too close. And to my mind, it is an implicit breach of the separation of powers. Now, let's talk about COVID-19, because the media haven't talked about the separation of powers or what a Supreme Court judge was doing in such intimate social uh, socialising with politicians, but let's get with with the lawmakers. But let and also there was one broadcast from RTÉ called Sean O'Rourke. So there's the broadcaster there, there's the Supreme Court judge, and there's all the lawmakers. So what that proves in one snapshot is that they are all this golden circle together. But let us move back to COVID nineteen. What their conduct proves is that COVID-19 is a scam that there's no serious risk to people more than would be with an ordinary seasonal severe flu and the flu kills the flu does kill and so does COVID-19 COVID-19 kills but the actual figures that we're looking at are no worse than a seasonal flu in fact I mean you know people will say look at the signs and but in fact they're no worse than a seasonal flu so this was at just after Ireland had brought in a statutory instrument in which it was said that it was compulsory to wear masks in supermarkets. The statutory instrument was published on a Sunday to take effect on a Monday. <clears throat> I got a copy of the statutory instrument and I read it and it stated that it, there shall be a reasonable defence of claiming that wearing a mask would cause extreme distress okay well, that's great i said because it, i can tell you bloody sure that wearing a mask would cause me extreme distress so that's what i invoked whenever some prick tried to kind of lecture me in the supermarket or anybody stopped me that went on for one or two days that ended i haven't worn a mask since i was three and i haven't worn a mask over the past four weeks but nobody in the mainstream media here is willing to say and actually the golfer's dinner in connemara is of international importance because if the leading politicians broadcasters and a judge of the republic of ireland are willing to flout the laws that shows that at an international level COVID 19 is a scam your mainstream media isn't talking about it our mainstream media is minimizing it and trying to move on and indeed the irish times which is a toilet paper rag these days described those people who are criticizing phil hogan who was a commissioner in the european union uh, those it called the people who were criticizing him a lynch mob which is just gaslighting it is not a lynch mob to ask questions of a person in power that's what we do in a republic and in a free society you know um thomas sheridan I don't speak on his behalf. He doesn't know about me doing this interview. But he did say in one of his excellent videos, because Thomas's videos are brilliant. You know Thomas, don't you? Oh, yes. For many, yeah. many years. I've interviewed oh, him yeah. many times. Thomas Sheridan said these people should be on criminal trial. They should be indicted for what they've done. And unless we see these people being tried and being brought to court, arrested, charged and brought to court for what they have done then you don't need to take COVID-19 or the people who are continuing to propagate it like the Irish Times and Arctic, you don't need to take them seriously. Now you may have noticed earlier this year an application for leave for judicial review is made by Gemma O'Doherty and John Waters. That crashed like the Hindenburg, that one went down in flames like the Hindenburg and one of the reasons why it failed and the judge right to dismiss it and I think the ruling that the judge published afterwards was excellent. I don't sympathize with the legal position taken by Waters and O'Doherty but one of the things that the judge said was in order to bring a case broadly of this nature and to challenge the constitutionality of law you have to show that you have been in some way damaged by this. So the Irish court's which will allow very intensive constitutional scrutiny of our law, which you don't have in the UK. You don't have that right. We do. But the Irish courts will allow you to to challenge the law. But you have to show the court in advance, look, I've been in some way hurt by this. So if you take me and my refusal to wear masks, if I am in any way arrested or charged for that, you can bet your bloody life that'll be one more high court case. You can bet your bloody life that'll be one more high court case. And I wouldn't be so complacent about me banjaxing it the way Gemma and John did. So, you know, um, this is why I, my my greatest um, summary, summary of the COVID-19, particularly the mask law here in Ireland, is don't worry about it. It's horseshit please don't take it seriously, don't wear a mask, just say, if anybody gives you any hassle, say, I'm claiming an exemption under Section 5 for extreme distress, and leave it at that. They're not going to pursue you for it, it's okay. And it takes on to, this carries on then, naturally leads on to what Thomas and my, uh, certainly I feel that the thing is a deliberate hoax, and indeed, more than being a hoax, it was a test to see what, Cross section of our normie society would fall for this this trick, would fall for you know who is going to be a sucker here, or who is going to actually read the statute when it was published, and say Ah Jesus sir, you know first of all, you can claim extreme distress and secondly there's no burden of proof on the defendant, so yeah you're going to you want to cut through, no I was just going to say a couple of things direct response. Yes,
1: when you were talking about this group of politicians and uh, the judge and their dinner and what that said about the reality of the situation, viewers, sorry, listeners uh, in the UK and elsewhere will remember uh, international headlines made when uh, Neil Ferguson, the guy behind the science of the lockdown, so-called, and Dominic Cummings, uh, Boris Johnson's advisor, when they exhibited the same personal behaviours that mm. uh, if they bought their own hype would have put themselves at extreme risk. Yeah. They, they did not believe that there was a serious risk. Otherwise, they would not have put themselves and their family and loved ones in the position that they did. That's so right. what sort of message does that send? And then when you talk about statutory instruments, it reminds me that in a lot of this, I hear people saying all the time now, it's the law, it's the law, it's the law. And I'm saying, hang on a minute. Differentiate, please. And I I remember doing this all the time in the wake of... Stop,
0: stop, 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 stop. Are you going into that kind of free man in the land? No, 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 I'm not. Please don't. No, no, I'm not
1: going to. Don't worry. What I mean is, but there's a difference between the law and policy. So...
0: Yes, be, I agree with you. I do actually, I know what you're saying. There, yeah, yeah. It's, it's government advice. It's like the government mm-hmm.
1: advice is the following. And I would say, yeah, but that isn't the law of the land. Therefore, um, a court yeah, you know, right. can't prosecute you for it. Police can't fine you, but a, a lot of people will hear that the law says you have to do this and that's they just right. accept it. So
0: that's right. It's just important.
1: Right. It's important to understand the difference between advice and the reason uh, it seems to me that a lot of the social distancing stuff and the mask wearing isn't the law is because it would be unenforceable. That's right. That's be, right. Because because of the the uh, the objections that people can raise along the lines you said that the courts would be clogged up with thousands of cases overnight.
0: That's right. Um, as soon as the statutory instrument was published, I put a post. I think it was on one of Thomas's Facebook threads in which I said, this statutory instrument is law, it is statute. So don't be saying, oh, you know, it's positive law or natural. That's all the the free man and the land shite. Don't go there. A statutory instrument signed by a minister with his properly delegated power from the Oeropolis is law. But then read the law and see how actually enforceable it might be or where the get outs of it are. Any solicitor will tell you, any top rank solicitor will tell you that when you are reading statute, you read for two things. You read for what the statute includes, and you read for what it excludes. And there were so many exclusions in the statutory instrument number 236 of 2020 to allegedly make face masks compulsory, that the effect of the law is to make, you know... It's not enforceable. But I you know I mean, you, if you followed my social media for many, 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 many years, I've been a stringent and continue to be a stringent opponent of these pseudo legal theorists who talk of a common law or positive law or natural law. That's all bollocks. It's 100 percent horses bollocks. So that statutory instrument is the law. But then you have to read for the loopholes and the catches in the law and the trapdoors and all the rest of it. And that's that's what I did. That's what I did. But I would emphasize that a statutory instrument in the Republic of Ireland is law. It's statute. It's, you know, and there are other statutory instruments, for example, in relation to our smoking ban. Our smoking ban was not brought in here by an act of the Oireachtas. It was brought in here by a statutory instrument. But that's still legally enforceable and it was a very tightly written statutory instrument. There were no... None of those kind of uh, ambiguities that exist in the present one that I mentioned. And this is why, you know, the smoke ban in pubs and shops and all the rest of it was enforceable and was strictly enforced when they brought it in in 2004.
1: Yeah, and I think that the the flexibility, if you want to call it that, in the, 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 the current uh, instrument, that, the law that you're referring to, exists because... Whoever was crafting it realized that they had to make it somehow workable and they
0: had to have these... I'll put that differently. Whoever was doing it knew that the thing was a fucking trick. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They knew it was a trick. So they wanted to bring out a statutory instrument that looked like, you know, this was just the most draconian law ever. And then any lawyer would read into it and go, ah, give me a break. You know, because what I noticed was... Within two or three days, the supermarkets, the big supermarkets like SuperValue, Dunn Stores and Tesco, now SuperValue and Dunn Stores are Ireland only groups, but Tesco, of course, and Lidl and Aldi, you have them in Britain as well, you know, they stopped hassling people who were coming in the door without a mask because their lawyers, and they would have very, very good lawyers, they would have said to them, this is unenforceable and you could find yourself in a situation of a civil lawsuit for troubling a person who's claiming that it's causing them extreme distress. So I noticed very quickly, within about two days, that the big supermarkets weren't giving anybody a moment's trouble if they weren't wearing a mask. Um, and that could only be done... The, the, the very fundamental shift that I deducted in the supermarkets or that I deduced in supermarkets would could only have been done on legal advice.
1: Yeah, I think that even the police... Certainly, in the UK, uh, you can tell me what the what the garda was saying, if it had anything at all, about this. And they were they could see what was coming down the line if if they and the uh, the shops got this wrong. And they've already got enough to do. The police, you know, and, and they were not going to want to be called out a hundred times an hour to quote unquote deal or be expected to deal with somebody who's who's refusing to comply because they realize that there isn't anything they can do certainly in this country they've said unless some incident in a shop turns violent that's right then you you won't be seeing us that's right that's right because until that until that point arrives that no crime has been committed
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: in our statutory instrument
0: there's another issue you see in relation to a reasonable defense and in ireland if you're caught with a firearm the burden of proof is on you to prove that you were lawfully in possession of that firearm and the statute and indeed judicial challenges uh, or litigious challenges in the high court of the supreme court have upheld the fact that in the republic of ireland if you are caught with the firearm the burden of proof is on you to prove why you have the firearm Whereas with the statutory instrument in relation to masks, it does not say that if a person is claiming a defence under Section 5, that they have to have a doctor's certificate, that they have to prove extreme distress. So if there's no burden of proof in in the statutory instrument, that means that if you do get prosecuted for not wearing the mask, the state has to prove that you would not suffer extreme distress, and they have to prove it. Beyond reasonable doubt. So that's absolutely for the birds. The notion of prosecuting under those circumstances, the Director of Public Prosecutions and the guards, they just don't. They wouldn't want to know about shit like this. It's a waste of time.
1: Okay. All of that being said, then what do you think is actually going on here? Given what you everything you said about the law and the position of the the police uh, on this. What's, what's behind this? Where do you think it's going? Now, that's a very big question when we take it in the context of the coronavirus crisis. But is it a social engineering agenda? Does
0: it play? I, I, no, I don't think they think that deeply. Um, okay. I think if you see the way Fine Gael operates here, Fine Gael doesn't want anybody to ask any awkward questions. Fine Gael, our political party, Fine Gael, have their backgrounds in fascism. Fianna Foyle have their backgrounds in setting up the constitution of the Republic of Ireland. So there's a very fundamental cultural and historical difference between Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael. And again, the mainstream media never acknowledge that because that would be acknowledging the agenda of Fine Gael. Fine Gael are natural authoritarians. So the notion of people questioning politicians or questioning the law or that kind of thing, they just don't want to happen. Um, I don't think that, if you look at the likes of the people who are in Fine at present, that they have given it that much thought. I really don't think that they have given it that much thought. Um, they're going to fail. The Republic of Ireland has much more stringent constitutional protections even than the United States. You know, we have extremely rigorous constitutional protections here. All of these efforts done in the past have failed. There is a real equilibrium in our system here, much more than in the UK. And this is why, you know, eventually, okay, Gemma O'Doherty and John Waters lost their application for leave for judicial review back in May or June. They deserved to. But I wouldn't take it for granted that the next person who takes a case of that nature will lose. And, you know... Um, At the moment, we're dealing with an authoritarian government full of authoritarian people. Eventually, they'll be gone. Eventually, the equilibrium will be restored. And all that we have to do, and I said it in my interview with Gran Torino the other night, is to stop worrying and don't live in fear. The excellent, brilliant Dave Cullen had a video without fear. And he's right. And Gran Torino is right. And I think I'm right. You know, these people are incompetent, stupid, lazy cowards and liars. You know, we'll beat them. But why are they behaving? Is it that when you
1: see these behaviours mirrored across various and many governments and administrations around the world, why are they responding in this? Is it that they're responding in the same way to these circumstances for the same reasons?
0: Is it worth even examining their motives? I don't know. Do you not think so? No, um, because you're speculating and. Like, if you take the European Union, for example, I think it's been a very positive thing for Europe. It's avoided another Franco-Prussian war. You only have to look back at the Second World War, let alone the Great War, and see how terribly destructive they were, what terrible damage was done by the Second World War. To say that, you know, the initial motives of creating what was initially European Coal and Steel Association, then it became the EEC, then it became the European Community, then it became the European Union. We have had the longest period in mainland Europe... We've had the longest period of prosperity and peace ever, without war in Western Europe ever. That's a very, very beneficial thing. And the European Union, in my opinion, has contributed to that. Um, the idea that there's some kind of nefarious agenda behind the European Union, I wouldn't assume. Uh, I think a lot of these people are like Varadkar. I think they're psychopaths. They only think in the short term they're impulsive and they're cowardly. Um, Johnny Rotten, John Leiden who had great time for, you know, he said, it's all about money. He said, if you go dig deep enough, you'll see it's about money. And I would be very strongly inclined to agree with John Lydon. Okay, Christian. Well, listen, we've touched upon
1: many different threads um, today and um, we're out of time, but we're going to pick this up again in the not too distant future. Before we sign off for today, you have a YouTube channel. So before we close out just share anything you'd like to with listeners if they want to hear a little bit more from you
0: um you can direct them via your facebook page to my facebook page my youtube my twitter my my youtube is christian morris tv that's all one word just christian morris tv okay well until we pick it up again christian
1: thank you so much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com thank you bye-bye